0: Welcome to Tell Me A Story. This is part three of the book Precious Time by Erica James. We left Clara and Ned down a country lane out in the middle of nowhere experiencing a terrifying ordeal at the hands of two menacing young men. In this episode we find out who their rescuer is and how their adventure continues. Chapter 11 the hand dropped from Clara's throat. Take it easy, granddad. Don't go giving yourself a heart attack. Less of the lip, you scum. You're on my land and I want you off it. Pronto. Do you understand that or do I have to spell it out into simple words that louts like you can understand? The two lads started backing away. Bloody cocky with your words, aren't you, you stupid old git? Tightening his finger on the trigger and lowering the shotgun until it was aimed directly at the youth's crotch, The man growled. So tell me, just how cocky do you feel? Get out of here. They fled to their car, and with the gun still trained on them, they turned it round and shot off down the track, leaving a dusty cloud hanging in the air. Clara realised that she'd been holding her breath and let it out now with a long sigh of relief. Her legs were still shaking and the sky spun. She leaned against the van, steeled herself, then opened the door and reached in for Ned. His face was as white as she felt hers must be. He trembled in her arms and she hugged him to her. She turned to face the formidable man who had come to their rescue. I'm so grateful to you, she said. If you hadn't turned up, she swallowed, then tried again. Well, I'm not sure how I would have got out of that. Thank you very much. To her surprise, the man made no attempt to offer any further reassurance. He simply stared at her, bristling with disapproval. Then, with a loud crack, he broke the gun and shoved the butt under his arm. "'You can save the fawning pleasantries,' he growled. "'I'm not interested. "'Maybe in future you'll think twice about trespassing on private property, "'especially somewhere as remote as this. "'Damn stupid of you to bring your, put yourself and the child in danger.' "'Women, bloody fools, a lot of you.' "'He turned his back and started to walk away. "'Clara was outraged. "'Why, you miserable old bugger!' she burst out angrily. "'Come back here and apologise this instant.' "'He slowed his step and twisted his head round. "'What did you call me? "'You heard, and if I wasn't holding a terrified child, "'I'd call you a lot worse. "'If that child is terrified, then you have only yourself to blame.' Oh, because I'm a woman on my own, I'm not allowed to take my son paddling. Is that what you're saying? Paddling, he echoed. Paddling in my water. I ought to bloody charge you for that. Do that, you old skinflint, and I'll report you to the police for behaving in a threatening manner with a dangerous firearm. It's crazy old fools like you with guns who get innocent people killed. Her voice was filled with rage. I'll wager that wasn't what you were thinking a few moments ago. I bet you'd never been so pleased to see a crazy old fool with a gun. If I'd known it would be you, I'd sooner have taken my chances single-handed. The hell you would, he go They stared at each other. In the silence that followed, Ned lifted his head from Clara's shoulder. I need a wee, he murmured and started to sob. Then Clara felt a wet warmth run down her front. The grumpy old man lowered his one eye to the puddle forming on the ground at her feet. Poor little beggar, he said gruffly. Get him changed and I'll make you some tea. Near to tears herself, but determined to hang on to her self-respect, she said, I can manage, thank you. I wouldn't want to take up any more of your valuable. He silenced her with a fierce, one-eyed stare. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth, young lady, until you're sure you can really do without it. Winnie seemed terribly cramped with the three of them inside it. Their guest, as he fumbled around making a pot of tea, was too tall and bulky for such a confined space. By the time Clara had calmed Ned and changed their clothes, and they were sitting at the little table with their tea, she thought she should introduce herself. An apology seemed appropriate too. My name's Clara Costello, and I'm sorry for some of the things I said out there. This is my son, Ned. He took off his cap and laid it on the table. Well, Miss Costello, the name's Liberty, Mr Liberty, and I never apologise for anything I say. In spite of herself, she smiled. You know, that doesn't surprise me. Do you often go for an afternoon stroll with a gun? When I feel like shooting something, yes. Well, much as I disagree with the ownership of guns, I'm glad you felt the need to shoot something today. "'Don't be so bloody patronising. Drink your tea and be quiet. "'That goes for you too, young man.' "'But he's got sugar in,' Ned said, "'taking a sip from his mug and screwing up his face "'that had now resumed its usual healthy glow. "'The man gave a snort of derision. "'Hell's bells and buckets of blood. "'Don't tell me your mother's one of those new-fangled creatures "'who doesn't believe in sugar.' "'I'm allowed sugar on cornflakes,' said Ned proudly. "'And grapefruit,' he added.' "'Very generous of her, I'm sure. "'What's wrong with your eye? "'And what's wrong with your manners, Mr Nosey Parker?' "'Unabashed, Ned carried on. "'You look like a pirate.' "'This seemed to amuse their guest. "'A black-bearded, buccaneering, lashing to the mainmast, me hearty type of pirate, I hope. "'Not some white-frilled, swashbuckling Nancy boy.' "'The distinction was lost on Ned. "'If you chopped a hand off, you could be Captain Hook.' The man looked down at the badly swollen fingers that were wrapped around his mug of tea. I'll bear that in mind. Come on, Ned, Clara said gently. Drink your tea and leave our guest alone. Do I have to? It's horrible. It's too sweet. Can't I have some blackcurrant juice, please? Sliding out from the seat she was sharing with Ned, Clara went over to the fridge, poured a cup of blackcurrant juice and reached into a locker for a packet of biscuits. She had no desire to prolong their rescuer's stay with them, but she felt she owed him a jaffa cake at the very least. He was a funny old stick, shabbily dressed in a moth-eaten green pullover with frayed cuffs and the elbows worn through. The points of his shirt collar were also worn and his brown corduroy trousers were scruffy and dirty. His shoes were unpolished and the stitching had been redone recently, but in the wrong colour. "'She sat opposite him and offered the packet of biscuits. "'His distorted fingers poked clumsily at the plastic wrapping "'as he helped himself, "'and she wondered just how good a shot he would have been "'if he had fired that wretched gun. "'Thinking of it now, she gave a consensuous glance. "'It was resting against the wardrobe at the far end of the van, "'along with its owner's smelly old waxed jacket. "'Stop worrying,' he said, seeing her face. "'It's safe enough.' I've taken the cartridges out. They're in my pocket. She made no comment, but thinking that she could take advantage of his local knowledge, she said, We're trying to find a campsite for the night. Perhaps you know where it is. She got to her feet to fetch the map. I doubt that very much, she said when she returned. Camping's hardly my scene. Heavens, are you always this helpful? He swallowed the last of his tea. You've got me on a good day. Lucky old us, she put the map down on the table between them and pointed to where Ron and Eileen had said the campsite was. It's called Hollow Edge View. I was told it was... It's gone, he interrupted. The owners beggared off down south last winter, bankrupted themselves. Not an ounce of business sense. Softies from London who thought it would be an easy option playing Old MacDonald Had a Farm. I knew they'd never make a go of it. I told them so too. Wow, and to think they didn't stick around to enjoy more of your warm neighbourliness. What were they thinking of? He looked up sharply, nostrils flaring. Nothing wrong in speaking one's mind. Depends on the state of the mind. Can you recommend anywhere else for us to stay? No. Well then, and since we've clearly exhausted you of your charm, you can leave us to sort ourselves out. I wish I could say it was a pleasure meeting you, Close the door after you, won't you, Mr Liberty? Gabriel was smiling to himself as he trudged home across the fields in late afternoon sunshine. He hadn't enjoyed himself so much in a long while. It wasn't often he came up against somebody brave enough to cross words with him, but that spiky, sharp-tongued young woman had made more of a go of it than anyone else ever had. Dr Singer tried it on although he was too conscious of his professional status to take a real verbal swing. But that Costello girl hadn't cared a jot for what his response would be, and fair play to her, though he still maintained that she was a damned fool to go wandering about the countryside on her own with a young child. Asking for trouble in this day and age, one never knew who or what was around the corner. Back at Mermaid House, he let himself in and went through to the gunroom, It was only then, as he stood in front of the locked glass-fronted cabinet, that he realised he didn't have his gun with him. Damn on blast, he'd left it behind with that girl and her son. A shiver of unease crept over him as he recalled the cartridges he had put into his coat pocket, which he had also stupidly left behind. He hoped to God that just as that little boy had been indoctrinated with the evils of sugar, he had been instilled with the belief that guns were a no-go area for children. He was about to retrace his steps across the fields to see if the camper van was still there when the telephone rang. To his surprise, he heard Jonah's voice at the other end of the line. Now, what was this about? When was the last time any of his children had phoned him? It was Ned who spotted it. Look, Mummy, Mr Liberty's forgotten his coat and gun. He reached out to touch the twin barrels and Clara shouted, Don't touch! Ned jumped. "'I was only looking,' he said, hurt. "'I'm sorry,' she said, "'but those things can kill, "'and it's much better that you never get "'within touching distance of something as dangerous.' "'What shall we do with it?' he asked anxiously. "'We could either wait and see if Mr Liberty comes back for it, "'or we could go and find him.' "'She turned and looked at the map "'that was still laid out on the table. "'My guess is,' she mused, "'and since he claimed to own this land,' that our friend Mr Grumpy Pounce Liberty lives here. Ned climbed up on the seat to see what she was pointing at. Where? Show me, she indicated with her finger. If we go back the way we came, join the main road, then turn right, just here, it's likely we'll find ourselves once again in the company of the rudest man on earth. What do you think? Is it worth the trouble? He stood on the bench seat so that he was eye to eye with her. I thought he was funny. I didn't. He was rude to us. Ned looked thoughtful. He stopped those horrible men from hurting you, and he made us tea because I was frightened. He lowered his gaze beneath his long lashes. I'm i sorry I wet myself. At the poignant reminder of what the old devil had done for them, Clara put her arms around her precious son. I nearly wet myself too, she said. It was scary. And you're right, she said decisively. It's time I learned to be more tolerant of other people's shortcomings. After Clara had put the gun inside a wardrobe, they washed up their cups, stored them away and set a course for Mermaid House. As to be expected, there was no helpful sign at the end of the track that Clara was convinced would lead them to where Mr Liberty lived. She turned off the main road, judded over a cattle grid and pressed on. She soon realised that she had to slow to a steady crawl. They rattled along for almost half a mile before they set eyes on the most extraordinary sight. Clara whistled. Now that's what I call a house. Ned was impressed too. It's a castle, Mummy. There weren't any battlements, but there was a tower built into one of the corners of the house. And it didn't take much imagination to picture a cursing Mr Liberty standing at the window, shotgun in hand, ready to defend his home from the onslaught of double-glazing salesmen. They came to an archway that led to a central courtyard. Clara parked alongside a battered old Land Rover, pulled on the handbrake and turned off the engine. Close up, the house was gloomier than it had appeared from a distance. The sun was low in the sky now and the cobbled courtyard was in shadow. The stonework was almost black in places and looked to be in need of a good restorative clean. One wall was almost covered in ivy which helped to soften the grim effect of so much discoloured stone but otherwise the house was as saturn and forbidding as its owner. But how different it must have been when it was originally built Clara thought as she hooked Mr Liberty's coat over her shoulder and picked up the gun. She and Ned walked towards what she hoped was a regularly used door, a deduction based on the pile of rubbish bags grouped around a collection of bins. A nose-wrinkling pong of rotting detritus floated out to them. Home, not so sweet home, she muttered under her breath, as she stood on the doorstep looking for a bell. Not finding one, she rapped loudly with her knuckles. No doubt he's preparing the hot oil and flaming arrows, she said to Ned. Shall I call him, he said, pushing open the letter box. That's probably not a good idea, Clara said, but it was too late. Ned was already peering in through the gap. Oh, he exclaimed, it's really untidy. There's things everywhere. Oh, I can see Mr. Liberty. Hello, Mr. Liberty, it's us. You forgot your gun and we've brought it for you. No need to make such a song and dance about it, young man. Bending down, Clara could see that Ned was nose-to-nose nose with the formidable one-eyed owner of the house. "'We've brought your coat, too,' Ned carried on, as though it was the most reasonable thing in the world to be holding a conversation through a letterbox. "'Your house is nice. It's just like a castle. Can I come in and see it, please? I'll be very good. I'll take my shoes off like I have to at Nana and Granddad, so I won't spoil your carpets, and I promise I won't run about and knock things over.' It was time to intervene. It's okay, Mr Liberty, Clara said. We're not here to bother you. I'll put your gun and coat here on the step and leave you in peace. Thanks for your help earlier this afternoon. Ned and I really appreciated what you did. Taking her son's hand, she lowered her voice. Come on, Ned, we mustn't make a nuisance of ourselves. Besides, it's getting late and we have to find a campsite. She turned to go. The door opened suddenly. You're too early. Too early for what? asked Clara. There's only one campsite in this area and it doesn't open for another two weeks. She sighed. Oh, that's brilliant. Just what I needed to hear. Why didn't you tell me that before? Oh, so it's my fault you didn't do sufficient background research before you came here, is it? How typical of a woman to blame her inadequacies on the nearest man to hand. She sighed again but now it was edged with a spark of annoyance. Mr Liberty, do you realise just how rude you are? Because if not, let me tell you here and now that I have seldom come across a more cantankerous and mean-spirited man. He smiled. Well, she thought it was a smile. It was more a case of his lips stretching into what she assumed was an unaccustomed position, resulting in the bearing of two rows of large, uneven teeth. "'And I have seldom come across a woman with as much ungracious impudence as you, Miss Costello,' he snarled. "'So I know that if I were to suggest you use one of my fields for the night, "'it would be a pointless gesture. You would only throw it back in my face.' "'Astonished, Clara hesitated. "'It was getting late. The light had almost gone, and she was tired. "'Embarking on a lengthy search for somewhere to hitch up for the night didn't appeal.' Also, the incident that afternoon had left her more rattled than she cared to admit. Just thinking about it again caused her heart to beat faster. It seemed eminently sensible to be within shooting distance of help, even if if it came in the person of this misogynistic old-timer with a serious attitude problem. Perhaps if we could come to some other arrangement, she said, choosing her words with care. "'Rather than spoil one of your fields by driving across it, "'how about we stay right here where we are in the courtyard?' "'He considered this. "'Just the one night?' he reiterated. "'Just the one night,' she confirmed. "'In fact, we'll be gone first thing in the morning. "'It will be as though we'd never been here.' "'He switched his gaze to Ned. "'And you, young man, you promise you'll behave? "'I don't want any trouble from you. "'No crying, no running about the place.' And definitely no shouting through my letterbox. I like things nice and quiet round here. If I hear so much as a snore out of you tonight, there'll be trouble. Got that? Ned gave a solemn nod, and then one of his most engaging smiles. Would you like to have tea with us, Mr Liberty? We're having pancakes. Oh, Mummy, please say Mr Liberty can have tea with us. Clara pushed her hands into the pockets of her jeans. Oh, well done, Ned, she thought. "'A cosy evening with Mr Misery. Perfect. "'You're more than welcome, Mr Liberty,' she lied. "'But it will be very simple. Nothing fancy, I'm afraid.' "'Mr Liberty's enthusiasm for the idea seemed as great as her own. "'He said, and dismissively so, "'Pancakes? Can't stand them. "'I've got a nice bit of rump steak and a glass of claret I'm looking forward to.' "'He turned back towards the house, but before he disappeared, he tossed them one last piece of invective. And remember, no noise or trouble. Chapter 12 Gabriel went to bed early that night. He often did. Sleep was a welcome antidote to boredom. And, thank God, it was something he was still good at. The rest of his body might be betraying him His hands, his bladder, his heart and the occasional limb given over to an attack of tremors but sleep was in that he could still crack. He stepped over the mess of plaster and curtains that he hadn't done anything about since he'd pulled the track off the wall two nights ago and got into bed. The sheets felt cold and damp. He didn't turn out the light straight away but sat for a while to contemplate his day. A habit of Anastasia's that had rubbed off on him. Every day is a challenge, she would say, but the real challenge is reflecting on the bad aspects of that day and learning from them. It was another of her idealistic foibles that had contrasted with his more pragmatic approach to life. Anything he didn't like about his day, he wrote off. I haven't got time to dwell on what's past, he had said once. Smiling her knowing smile, Anastasia had stretched out beside him in bed and stroked his cheek. Gabriel Liberty, I promise you that one day, when you're old and grey, you will find you have more time on your hands than you know what to do with, and then you'll understand. We're never going to be old, he had responded fiercely. I would rather be dead than ancient and decrepit. He hadn't been much older than the age his children were now when he had said this, but as he shifted his pillows against the mahogany bedhead, Gabriel could remember uttering those words as though it were yesterday. Anastasia had shushed him with a finger against his lips. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, young or old, what does any of it matter so long as we're together and making the most of what we have? Then she had kissed him, one of those long lingering kisses that had promised him the world. With his eyes shut he could still feel the warmth of her moist mouth against his. He snapped his eyes open. This was absurd. What did he think he was doing? He reached for the book by the side of the bed. A heavy tome of political memoirs guaranteed to see off such sentimental nonsense. But it remained closed as his train of thought was distracted again. Not by the distant past, but by the events of today. He wondered how his guests were getting on. Thinking of the pancakes they must have enjoyed, he thought of his own supper. A lukewarm tin of Heinz tomato soup. He'd lied about the rump steak and claret, just as he frequently lied to Jonah about what he ate. Often he didn't eat what Jonah fetched him from the shops. The fresh fruit, the vegetables, the chicken breasts. It was too much trouble. Cooking for one was bad enough, but eating alone was worse. So why hadn't he accepted the invitation to join that well-mannered little boy and his mother for supper? especially as their appearance down by the river had provided him with the highlight of an otherwise tedious day. Since Val's illness and her death, he'd got out of the habit of being sociable, not that he'd ever been gregarious. Val had been the driving force when it came to showing one's face at local functions. He'd gone along with it to keep the peace. He had preferred to devote himself to work, but even that had paled as the years went on. And then there came the day when finally he had had to resign himself to the truth that none of his children was interested in taking over the business he had inherited from his own father. It had been a bitter day indeed when he sold up and retired. He had never forgiven Casper and Jonah for letting him down. In his heart, Damson had never really been in the running. They could not have found a more hurtful way to snub him. Everything he had worked for and hoped to pass on to them They had, by their actions, despised and rejected. A solid engineering company with a name that was known and respected around the world wasn't good enough for them, was it? Oh, dear me, no. And what had they chosen to do instead? Not much. After dropping out of university, Casper, whose colossal self-regard far exceeded his willingness to get his hands dirty with real work, had thrown himself into a series of get-rich-quick scams that had all turned into financial disasters. During the 80s, he'd fancied himself one of the Thatcher's boys, but his entrepreneurial skills were never going to sustain that ideal. He was an idle beggar who thought the world owed him a favour. His worst commercial disaster had been selling timeshares in Spain. When the bottom dropped out of the high market, the banks foreclosed, investors lost their money one of Casper's partners was sent to prison for fraud. But what else could you expect from the costa Del's crime? No two ways about it, Casper was a dreadful businessman, and an even worse jug- judge of character. Now he peddled overpriced cars for a living. As for Jonah, the brightest of the bunch, he was wasting what talents he had been given by teaching in a third-rate school and earning buttons. It went without saying, of course, that Damson had never held down a proper job. She had been too preoccupied with enjoying herself. So Gabriel had entered the twilight zone of retirement. It hadn't suited him, isolated from the only world he'd been interested in, industrial engineering, pipes, gaskets and valves. He'd soon realised he had few friends. The people he had mixed with had been business associates in the steel-producing heartlands of Sheffield and other than his love of books, he had nothing else to occupy him. Without meaning to, he'd allowed the days to run through his fingers like sand. Anastasia would never have let him do this, for her every day had counted. Val had tried to persuade him that they should explore the world together, but because he had travelled so extensively on business, he had ignored the brochures she'd left lying about the house, and withdrew to his library. Then she had died and it was easier to retreat further still, to batten down the hatches and let the world go hang. He knew the house was a mess and that he should do something about it, but where to start? It had got so out of hand that the task now seemed insurmountable. He knew too that at times he was offhand and acerbic, but he didn't have the patience to be polite. He had always been direct and to the point. That was how one survived in business. Fannying around with false pleasantries would have got him nowhere. If a spade was a shovel, what the dickens was wrong was? If a spade was a shovel, what the dickens was wrong in declaring it so? When had mealy-mouthed insincerity become the alternative to good old-fashioned honesty? That's what he'd liked about the Costello woman. She'd said exactly what she thought. She had had the guts to call him a miserable old bugger. Good for her. That was what he approved of and could respect. He hated it when his children took whatever he dished out to them. It made him want to shake them and shout, Why can't you be more like me? Where's your bloody backbone? She was smart too. He could tell that by her waspish, quick-witted manner. Take the way she'd sized up the situation down in the courtyard. He'd offered her the use of a field, but she had wanted somewhere better and hadn't been afraid to ask for it. She was a determined woman who was used to ploughing her own furrow, though he doubted that she would have been able to talk her way out of that ugly situation with those two nasty pieces of work. Lucky for her that he frequently went down to the copse. lucky too that he had been seized with the urge to take a few pot shots at the crows. He had hated those birds ever since, as a boy, he had seen one pluck out the eyes of a newborn lamb. Armed with his gun, he had been intent on an afternoon sport, "'when he spotted the camper van parked on his land. "'He'd quickened his pace, "'preparing to give the trespassers a piece of his mind "'when the car had appeared. "'It had been satisfying to see the expression "'on the two yobos' faces change "'as they'd looked down the business end "'of a double-barrelled shotgun, "'and even better seeing them run off, rotten cowards, "'picking on a young mother and her child. "'Perhaps he had gone too far when he'd shouted at her, But anger had fueled his words. Anger that this was the kind of world in which he lived, where young women and children weren't safe to set foot in the countryside for fear of being robbed or subjected to God knew what else. He thought of that poor mite wetting in himself and wished now that he'd scared those bully boys even more. He hated the idea that disease-ridden scum of the big towns and cities was now infiltrating what had always been a place of sanctuary to him. Anastasia had loved to walk alone in the hills and so had the children. Jonah in particular had relished the solitude of the moors disappearing for hours at a time. He'd offered Miss Costello and her son the field because he had been generally concerned about their welfare. What if she was too tired to find a decent campsite and had dropped anchor in any old place and attracted further trouble? He might be considered in some quarters to be a bad-tempered old devil. he was not the kind of man who would let a young woman go without somewhere safe to stay. Smiling to himself, he thought of all the names he'd been called that day. A miserable old bugger, an old skinflint, a crazy old fool, a cantankerous and mean-spirited man. Not bad for starters. He switched off the light and wondered what he might be in for tomorrow morning. Then he remembered that his feisty little guest had said they were would be gone by first thing in the morning. It will be as though we'd never been here. He turned the light back on, reached for his clock and set the alarm for 6.30, just in case he overslept. It would be a shame to miss out on a parting shot. Chapter 13 That night, unable to sleep, Archie stared at the ceiling above his bed. The curtains at the window were thin and unlined, and from the street lamp outside a glow of orange light shone through the cheap fabric. It was sufficient, though, for his eyes to follow the cracks in the plasterwork, as if he was tracing a route on a map. That's me, he thought tiredly. I'm looking for the way out, or at least some kind of direction. He turned on to his side, hoping sleep would come if he lay in a different position. It didn't now he could hear a gang of youngsters coming back from the pub they were kicking a tin can between them and their carefree banter jarred on his troubled thoughts he had received a letter from Stella's solicitor the grey paper with the overly pedantic language had told him what he already knew that more than two decades of marriage was to be reduced to mrs s merriman versus mr a f merriman. The tone of the letter suggested that the matter could be brought to a swift conclusion, as Mrs Merriman was happy to leave her husband's business concerns out of the negotiations, but the house was another matter. As Mr Merriman no doubt understood, Mrs Merriman had been a party to the original purchase of the property, as well as a regular contributor to the mortgage payments, so she was entitled to her share of the matrimonial home. But she had no argument with that. It was all true. And as much as he wanted to avoid the upheaval of selling the house, he knew he had no choice. He had no other means to pay off Stella. Still restless, he rolled over onto his left side and tried to relax. But his mind was racing through the years he and Stella had shared. The good times and the bad times. It mattered to him that the past was kept intact. Just as it mattered to him that, for now, there were still traces of Stella's presence in the house, painful as they were like the brush she'd left on the dressing table with hairs caught among the bristles, the clothes she hadn't taken with her, the magazine on the kitchen worktop, still open at a page showing some film star with the new love of his life. Ten minutes later, as sleep continued to elude him, he let out a sigh of defeat. Insomnia was a new phenomenon to him, and other than getting out of bed and making himself a brew, he didn't know what to do. He slipped on his towelling dressing gown and went downstairs quietly, not wanting to disturb his mother. She had taken to waking during the night and thinking it was time to get up. She'd done it last night. At three o'clock he'd heard a noise coming from the kitchen and had shot downstairs ready to confront whoever had broken in. What he found was Bessie setting out the breakfast things, plates and bowls, packets of cereal and slices of bread ready to go under the grill. His appearance in the kitchen had startled her so much that she had been able to get a co- coherent word out. It had taken him some time to convince her that it was still the middle of the night. As he led her back to her room, she had launched into a long, heartfelt and impassioned speech, not one word of which he could understand. He sat on the edge of her bed, coaxing the words of lucidity from her, soothing her frustration, until gradually he had realised that she felt guilty Stella had left him, and was trying to help by seeing to things around the house. But Mum, he had said, I can manage perfectly well. I don't want you to worry about anything like that. He would wanted to add that Stella had never made the breakfast anyway, that it had always been his job. He'd spent an hour reassuring his mother that he could cope, before he got back to his own bed but by five o'clock she was up again, running herself a bath. When it came to Bessie having a bath, the golden rule was that somebody had to be on hand to help her, just in case. Just in case she slipped. Just in case she fell asleep. Just in case she scolded herself. But if Archie's golden rule was that her bath time had to be supervised, her own golden rule was that he was not allowed in the bathroom while she was in a state of undress. With the door ajar he could sit outside on the landing, keeping up a steady flow of conversation about the shop, Samson, Comrade Norm and the customers that came in to haggle over a stainless steel egg cup. Now in the harsh glare of the overhead strip light, he stood in the kitchen, listening to the kettle coming to the boil. The speech therapist at the hospital had said that Bessie was improving and he hung on this glimmer of hope, wanting to believe that his mother would make a good, if not full, recovery. He poured boiling water into the badly stained teapot, thinking how unfair it was that Bessie should now be cheated of enjoying life. She had worked hard down the years, had accepted and overcome every challenge thrown at her. Most had been a direct result of Archie's father having walked out on her when she was pregnant, leaving her to cope with the daily grind of making ends meet while struggling to bring up a child on her own. If he had stayed away forever, it would have been better all round, but he took advantage of Bessie's generous nature and returned to sponge off her whenever the mood took him. It was always a relief when he grew bored of regular meals and her willingness to forgive and left them alone. Archie sat at the kitchen table to drink his tea and tried to remember what Dr. Singh had said about there being swings and roundabouts to face. He'd heard a snippet on the radio too Something about keeping the stroke patient as active as possible, not just physically, but mentally. Apparently, the precariously balanced mental capacities had to be exercised and shored up. Boredom was to be avoided at all costs. Loneliness, too. It occurred to him that maybe he could get Bessie into the shop for a few hours a day. She might like that. As kind as the neighbours had been, Bessie hadn't made a lot of effort to get to know them, and anyway, it wasn't easy for her to talk to strangers now. Her speech embarrassed her, and she knew that it embarrassed them. No, the solution was to get her involved in the shop. Give her little tasks to do, such as polishing some of the small pieces of furniture. And those horse brasses from the house clearance job he'd done the other day would come up a treat with a bit of tender loving care. As with the box of commemorative plates, which were covered in dust and grime. If he planned it carefully, there would be any number of little jobs he could find for her to do. But he would have to be subtle about it. His mother was no fool. He would have to make out that she was doing him a big favour, that he needed her help. There again, one look at Samson's huge clumsy hands would tell her that the big guy wasn't made for cleaning delicate china. He swallowed the last of his tea, rinsed the mug under the tap, put it ready for his breakfast in the morning and went back upstairs to bed. As he pulled the duvet over him, life didn't seem so bad after all. He'd always believed that for every problem, there was a solution. It was just a matter of reasoning it through. Drifting off to sleep, he felt better than he had in days. Maybe things would start to pick up now. Chapter 14 Clara woke to the sound of rain pattering on the roof of the camper van. Stretching beneath the duvet, she opened her eyes and looked at her watch. It was eight o'clock. Goodness, as late as that! Still, there was no hurry, and as Ned was sleeping soundly, she could savour a rare lion. She closed her eyes, listened to the rain, and hoped it wouldn't develop into a full-blown downpour. Sadly, it seemed that the waitress's prediction at the cafe yesterday... been less than accurate. The rain had come early. They'd been lucky so far on their trip. This was their first wet day. Captain's log, star date, 29 March, she thought with a smile. Day five, rain. She should be keeping a diary. In years to come, when she was slogging away on the treadmill, it would make interesting reading. It would be nice for Ned too, a keepsake to prove that they had been brave enough to flout convention. Well, it wasn't too late to start. She would buy a book in Deaconsbridge and encourage Ned to play his part too. He could write his own entries, draw a few pictures, and maybe stick in postcards of where they had stayed. Another oversight, postcards. She was supposed to be keeping her friends and parents up to date with their travels. But somehow she just hadn't got round to it. Nor had she phoned Louise, but that had been a conscious effort on her part to distance herself from home. To get the most out of this trip, she'd wanted to separate herself from what she'd left behind. So, buying some postcards was another job for today, she thought, her orderly mind now putting together a list of things she had to do. They needed a supermarket, and a laundrette would be useful. She didn't mind hand-washing a few pairs of pants and socks, but larger items were a drag. After yesterday, and their several changes of clothes, she could do with throwing everything into a machine while she and Ned had a nose round the shops in the market square. Maybe they could have another meal at the Mermaid Café and decide what they were going to do next. If it looked like the rain was going to settle in for the day, they could perhaps drive across to Castleton and visit the underground caverns, some of which, according to the guidebooks, were open all year. She stretched again and sighed contentedly. How pleasant it was to know that one's only concern for the day was to find a washing machine and something to eat with a little amusement thrown in. It was a far cry from worrying about meeting the latest production line quotas. She didn't miss any of it, except perhaps the silly emails from the boys, Guy and David, and their antics. Guy had lifted the tension on many a head-banging against the wall day. He would burst through her door like a member of the SAS, rolling across the floor and jumping up to declare that he had her covered, usually with a staple gun. The first time he had done it, she had nearly fallen off her chair in alarm. It was also the first time she'd met him. Hi, he'd said, slipping the stable gun into the waistband of his suit trousers. I've been sent to introduce myself, seeing as you're new to the department. How are you getting on, Miss Clara Bell Costello? Fine until you burst in and tried to staple me to the spot. Could you try knocking in future? You never know what I might be doing in here. And my name's Clara, not a ding-dong to be heard. He never did knock, but she soon got used to his entrance and the pet name. She smiled at the memory. It was the camaraderie she missed, not the job. Already she was discovering that, away from home, her sense of perspective was undergoing further change. Though she and Ned had had holidays before, this one was different. There was no rush to their days. They did not have to cram everything into a week. Even yesterday's horrible incident hadn't dampened her enthusiasm. She wasn't nervous by nature, but last night she'd been grateful to Mr Liberty for allowing them to stay here, for her own peace of mind and Ned's. But she need not have worried about him. Ned had tucked into his supper with relish and gone to bed happily. The campsites they had stayed at previously had never been free of noise, of caravan doors clicking shut, Toilets flushing, radios and televisions playing. Here, in the courtyard at Mermaid House, it had been the quietest night she had known. Other than a faint rustling of leaves on trees and the occasional distant animal noise, it had been as silent as the grave. Which probably accounted for the good night's sleep she'd had. Overcome with a general sense of well-being, she thought that perhaps when she and Ned went into Deaconsbridge that morning, they would buy a small present for Mr Liberty to thank him. She also wanted to try to make amends for being so rude to him. Fear and tiredness must have got the better of her. She wondered if he was a one-off or whether there was more like him inside Mermaid House. A whole family of eccentric liberties slowly driving each other round the bend. If so, it was straight out of Cold Comfort Farm. Putting aside its cranky eccentric owner, The house was a veritable piece of whimsy. She had never seen anything like it before. She hoped there would be a chance, if she made peace with Mr Liberty, to have a look round. Maybe she could get Ned to ask him. It would sound less intrusive coming from a four-year-old boy. Thinking of Ned, Clara rolled onto her side and looked towards his sleeping compartment. There was still no sign of movement from behind the curtain. He must have been shattered last night to sleep this long. So all the fresh air, she thought. That would meet with her mother's approval. As babies, she and Michael had been put outside in their prams in all weathers. Toughened you up nicely, said her mother, who had tried to do the same with Ned. Just airing him, she claimed, when Clara arrived to collect him after work and found him on the patio with a strong wind buffeting the pram. Airing him or freeze-drying him, Mum? Though she'd made her views clear on how she wanted her son treated, Clara knew that while her back was turned, her mother did as she pleased. But so long as Ned thrived, Clara couldn't complain. Anyway, she was glad to have parents prepared to help out. Without them, she wouldn't have coped nearly so well. When she had discovered she was pregnant, there had been no dilemma over whether or not to keep the baby. She had loved her unborn child's father, so it had seemed natural to want his baby. Telling her parents that she was pregnant had been one of the hardest things she had ever done. She knew she had let them down. Is there really no chance of the father taking on his responsibility? Her mother had asked, stricken. No, Mum, he's already married. That had been the second shock they'd had to cope with, that their sensible, well-brought-up daughter had been stupid enough to have an affair with a married man. Initially, they'd wanted to play... Initially, they had wanted to blame the despicable Rotter for tricking her into a relationship with him when he should have known better. But she told them, I knew all along that he was married. At the time, though, he was separated from his wife. They'd seized on this glimmer of hope. Is he divorced now? her father asked. No, he and his wife are reconciled. Her father had picked up on the one aspect of the tale she had tried to gloss over. Did you tell him you were pregnant, he asked. No. But darling, why not? He's the father. He should know, her mum, mother remonstrated. You only think that because you want to believe he'll wave a magic wand over my pregnancy and make it nice and respectable. That's a little hard on us, her father had said. But it's true, isn't it? Imagine this year's Christmas cards. Oh, and by the way, Clara's expecting our first grandchild, but we don't know who the father is. ''You haven't told us his name,'' her mother said, pushing this uncomfortable home truth to one side. ''There's no need to. You won't ever meet him.'' In the end, and once the shock had worn off, her parents made it clear that they would be standing right by her. ''It's your life,'' they told her, ''and we'll do all we can to help.'' Their love and solidarity was just what she needed. It still brought a lump to her throat when she thought of their support and devotion. By the time Ned was due, they were ready to fend off the merest hint of criticism from anyone and drove her to the hospital when she went into labour. She'd never seen her father drive as fast as he had that night, crashing through red lights, the horn blaring. In the back of the car, next to Clara, her mother was breathing so hard it was difficult to know which of them was about to give birth. Louise met them at the hospital. She'd been co-opted into being Clara's birthing partner, much to the rest of the gang's relief. You know I'm your biggest fan, Clara Bell, Guy had said. But to see you flat on your back and screaming like a banshee would dispel the beautiful illusion I have of you. In the early hours of the morning, Ned had made his appearance. He was the most amazing, tiny, wide-eyed, dark-haired bundle of wonder Clara could have imagined. She couldn't take her eyes off him. As she gazed into his little face, she felt as if she had always known him. So there you are, she almost said. I was wondering where you'd got to. Even Louise, the world's biggest child-hater, had been moved to tears when he had wrapped his tiny fingers around her thumb, though she claimed later that hunger and exhaustion had overwhelmed her. Clara's parents had been equally moved by their grandson. Her father had hidden his wet cheeks behind a brand-new Pentax, specially bought for the occasion, saying that somebody had to capture the moment. But her mother had sniffed and gulped quite openly, holding Ned in her arms and posing proudly for the camera. At visiting time later that day, the gang were in her ward, presenting her with flowers and champagne, chocolates and a huge teddy bear. "'It'll scare the poor mite witless, Moira had said, taking a cautious but curious peek at Ned, who was asleep in Clara's arms. Was it as bad as Louise told us it was? Louise held up her hands. Sorry, Clara, but yes, I'm guilty of giving the sordid details. Frankly, from where I was standing, it was bloody awful. You've done me an enormous favour in putting me off for life. Four years on, Louise said that the moment she ever felt her hormones creeping up on her, she only had to think of that night in hospital with Clara and they shrank back into line without another word. Though none of her friends had ever wanted children, they loved Ned and went out of their way to spoil him. He might not be in possession of a full deck of parents, but in all other respects he was a lucky boy, devoted grandparents and a set of the most doting aunts and uncles a child could wish for. Clara slipped out of bed and filled the kettle. As she set it on the gas ring, she made a mental note to top up the water barrel before leaving. It held enough for two days of showers, cooking and washing up, but she hated the idea of running out, so she kept a sharp eye on it, and while she was about it, she checked their gas supply. After wiping away the condensation that had formed on the window above the cooker, she opened one of the large vents in Winnie's roof, just enough to freshen the air, but not to let the rain in, by which time the kettle had boiled and the van had acquired what she called a comforting happy camper smell of burning gas. She made a pot of tea. Then, surprised that the whistling of the kettle hadn't woken Ned, she stepped onto the first rung of the ladder and poked her head through the curtains. Her heart leapt into her mouth. Ned's bed was empty. Chapter 15 It was every parent's worst nightmare. Cold, debilitating fear consumed her, then sick panic took over. She leaned across Ned's rumpled bed and flung back the duvet, as though he might be there after all. She threw aside his pillow too, and rummaged through his collection of cuddly toys. Next she stumbled down from the ladder and checked the rest of the van, sparing herself on in the faint hope that in the night, and without disturbing her, Ned might have used the toilet and fallen asleep in there. No sign of him. She stood for a moment to gather her thoughts. Had someone sneaked into the van while she slept and abducted him? She recalled a harrowing case several years ago of a young girl who'd been taken from a tent and murdered. No, Ned must simply have gone for a walk. In the rain? Without bothering to change out of the oversized T-shirt she'd slept in, she pulled on a pair of jeans and pushed her feet into her trainers. She opened the door and stepped outside. The rain was coming down heavier now and splashed against her face as she scanned the courtyard. If she thought Mermaid House gloomy yesterday, it was even more so in the pouring rain. Beneath the pewter sky, the walls seemed darker than ever and water was cascading from a broken section of guttering. She made a dash for the door and not caring that she had promised Mr Liberty they wouldn't cause any noise or trouble, she banged on it loudly. If she was going to find Ned, she needed his help. He would have some idea where a curious child might wander on his land. Impatiently, she crashed her knuckles against the frosted glass panel of the door. Come on, come on, she cried frantically. Then, just as Ned had done yesterday, she bent down, pushed open the letter box, and peered inside. Mr Liberty, she called. I'm sorry to disturb you, but I need your help. Please answer the door. Still no response. "'Desperation set in, and with no shelter from the rain, "'she was now thoroughly wet and cold. "'Fear was making her nauseous and conjuring up yet more disturbing images "'of Ned lost in this unknown landscape, "'wandering across the fields and finding his way down to the river "'where they'd paddled yesterday. "'The water hadn't been deep there, "'but what if he had discovered a more dangerous section, "'where, where a small boy could drown?' "'She hammered wildly on the door.' At last, in almost in tears, she heard the familiar but welcome sound of Mr Liberty cursing. ''Hell's teeth! What's all the rumpus?'' he growled, throwing open the door and staring at her fiercely. ''It's Ned!'' she gulped. ''He's missing and I don't know where to start looking for him. Will you help me, please? I thought you might know...'' From behind him, a head appeared, followed swiftly by the rest of Ned in his slippers, pyjamas and stripy dressing gown, whose belt was trailing on the ground. Clara went weak with relief. He was safe. She pushed past Mr Liberty, knelt on the stone-flagged floor and hugged Ned. But hot on the heels of relief came irrational anger, and to her shame it was all she could do to stop herself shaking him. You know you're not supposed to leave the camp of Anne on your own, she said. As calmly as she could, I was so worried. I thought something terrible had happened to you. Please don't be cross with me, Mummy, he said tremulously. Mr. Liberty said it would be all right. If Clara had felt like shaking Ned, she now felt like punching Mr. Liberty's good eye right out of its socket. She got to her feet. Let me get this straight. This was all your idea? He cleared his throat saw the little lad peering out of his window and thought he might appreciate some company. Which he did. Isn't that right, young man? His cavalier attitude pushed Clara's anger to its zenith. What gives you the right to think you can encourage my son to break a rule? What did you think you were doing? Mummy? Ned, please, I'm talking. But, Mummy, Mr Liberty showed me a secret door and the tower. He said there used to be a ghost up there. He told me that... "'Possibly not the time, young man,' Mr Liberty murmured. "'Maybe we both ought to be apologising to your mother. "'She's looking a mite bothered to me.' "'Clara flashed him a look of pure fury. "'Bothered? I was out of my mind with worry. I thought...' "'She stopped. "'She didn't want to relive the horror of thinking Ned might have been kidnapped by some perverted beast.' that he might be lying dead somewhere, that she might never see him again and never feel his little body crushed against hers, that she might never stroke his soft cheek and silky smooth hair. Her anger subsided and the heart-thumping pain of relief returned. I thought you didn't go in for making apologies. He looked uncomfortable. On this occasion, I'm prepared to make an exception. So, what are you waiting for? Miss Costello... I meant you and your boy no harm, and I'm very sorry that I caused you a moment's concern. I'm sorry too, Mummy, Ned's hand crept into hers. Don't be cross, he added, shooting down any remaining vestiges of anger, with one of his heart-melting smiles. Suddenly, she couldn't speak, but Mr Liberty filled in the silence. Well, if we're through with the sentiment, can you decide what you want to do next? contrition dispensed with he went on you can either stand here for the rest of the day letting in the rain and freezing to death or you can warm yourself by the fire in the kitchen while i make you some tea a task i've proved myself more than capable of doing once before clara decided to accept and she and ned followed as mr liberty led the way she was appalled at what she saw mess and clutter lay everywhere piles of junk as far as the eye could see The house smelt, too. She had imagined a comforting old-fashioned kitchen with a massive fireplace where once upon a time a whole pig would have been roasted on a spit with a lowly scullery maid to turn the handle. This dingy, bone-chilling room with its grimy walls and flaking paintwork, especially above the cooker, which was covered in a thick film of grease, was not what she had envisaged. "'Nor was the gas-fired contraption with which Mr Liberty was now fiddling. "'She wondered why on earth he used such a device "'when behind it stood an argo the size of a small car. "'It's the very devil to get going sometimes,' Mr Liberty complained, "'as he clicked away at a button on the side of the heater "'in an effort to ignite the flame. "'At last it caught and he straightened up triumphantly. "'There, that showed it who's boss.' She could see from his face that the coaxing of the heater into life was a daily battle of wills. Don't stand there on ceremony, he commanded. Sit yourself down. He scraped one of the heavy chairs away from the long table and put it a few feet short of the heater. She crossed the room reluctantly, her shoes sticking to the scummy floor with each step, and sat in front of the meagre source of warmth. Mr Liberty threw a tea towel at Ned. ''Don't stand there idly, young man,'' he said. ''Help your mother to dry her hair. We don't want her catching her death, do we?'' ''You wouldn't be spoiling me with your best Irish linen, would you?'' she said, taking the grubby cloth from Ned. He harrumped loudly, turned away from her, and set about the business of making tea. A dubious brown crust on the tea towel made her wonder if a mug of tea was such a good idea. Lord knows what she might catch.' She tried to lose the tea towel discreetly by folding it to slip it under some conveniently placed object but Ned took it from her and tried helpfully to dab at her hair. She ducked out of its reach. "'No, Ned,' she whispered, "'it's dirty.' "'Shall I ask Mr Liberty for a clean one?' he whispered back. He might as well have placed a megaphone to his lips and relayed the message for the whole of the Peak District to hear. Mr Liberty was rinsing mugs under the tap and whipped around. Complaining again, Miss Costello, and there was me on the verge of offering you something to eat. The very idea made Clara want to gag, but to her horror, Ned said, breakfast would be nice. He smiled at Mr Liberty. What have you got to eat? I'm hungry. Clara stepped in fast. Why don't I cook us all a fry up in the van? She'd do anything to avoid being laid low with gastroenteritis. Even cook for this vinegary old man. We've got plenty of eggs and bacon. He looked at her shrewdly. Are you implying that my house isn't good enough for you, that it's not clean? I'm not implying anything of the kind, she said, rising from the chair to escape the gas heater and its noxious fumes. I'm telling you straight, the house, what I've seen of it, is a health hazard. He flared his nostrils. For one so young, you have quite a nerve, Miss Costello. Are you always so direct with people you hardly know? She gave him a conciliatory smile. Like you said earlier, sometimes there are occasions when one is forced into a position of making an exception, which means I am being unusually restrained with you. You should think yourself lucky. He gave a short bark of a laugh. Ned, my boy, you have an extraordinary mother. Did you know that? And just to prove that I don't harbour any ill feelings, I'm going to take her up on her offer of a cooked breakfast. That should teach her a lesson for shooting her impertinent mouth off, shouldn't it? Inside the camper van, Gabriel tucked hungrily into his plate of bacon and eggs, relishing every mouthful. He couldn't remember the last time he'd eaten a cooked breakfast. ''Would you like some ketchup, Mr Liberty?'' asked Ned from across the narrow table, a piece of streaky bacon dangling from his fork. ''Ketchup's for calves,'' Gabriel replied tersely. ''It's the opium of the common people.'' ''What's opium?'' He doesn't need to know, his mother chipped in, and don't speak with your mouth full. Are you referring to me or your son, to both of you? Why don't I need to know? Yes, Miss Costello, come along now, don't be shy. Surely you have an answer for your unnaturally inquisitive son. You seem to have an answer for just about everything else. To his delight, a slightly raised eyebrow indicated that he had scored a point. It's a drug made from poppies, Ned, she said. And it's highly addictive. It melts your brain, and before you ask what addictive means, it means that you want it all the time. Like chocolate? Yes, but you want it even more than chocolate. But how does it melt your brain? And if I ate too much chocolate, would my brain melt? Would it pour out through my ears, going gloopy, gloop, gloop, if I shook my head? He gave him a demonstration, his eyes swivelling. Gabriel was reminded of Casper and Dan's and the small children. They had always been on at him, question after tiresome question. There never seemed enough answers in the world for them. Jonah had been the opposite, hardly opening his mouth. If he wanted to know something, he found it out for himself. Jonah's an intelligent boy, Gabriel Val often said. You should do more to encourage him. Try to show how proud you are of him. But Jonah had thrown away his potential. Sighing inwardly and feeding his good humoured rein out of him, Gabriel stabbed a piece of toast into the yolk of his second egg. He could remember the stinging blow Joan had dealt him when he had announced his intention to become a teacher. They'd been in the library, the setting sun turning the room amber, shafts of light catching the motes of dust in the warm air, music coming from some other part of the house. Please, dad, he had said, his hands stuffed into his trouser pockets. Don't make this any harder for me than it already is. Just hear me out and respect my decision. That's all I ask. And all I've ever asked of you is your respect, loyalty and duty, as my father expected them of me. And maybe your father was wrong to expect so much of you. Perhaps if he had treated you differently, you might have treated us differently. Incensed at the double-edged criticism levelled at both himself and his father, a man he had both feared and idolised, Gabriel had done the unthinkable. He'd lashed out and struck Jonah, knocking him clean off his feet. In shock, he had watched his younger son pick himself up from the floor, then touch the blooded corner of his mouth. But something more than anger was raging inside Gabriel, something far worse that made his fists itch to strike Jonah again. He never knew whether Jonah had done it deliberately, but his gaze, as he dusted himself down, moved from Gabriel's face to the portrait of Anastasia above the fireplace. It was as if he was saying, "'And what would she say of your behaviour? But in a quiet and wholly restrained voice he had said, "'Why can't you trust me to cock up my own life, Dad? "'Why try to do it for me?' Not another word passed between them. "'Not for the rest of that evening,' that week or the months that followed. When Jonah walked out on him that night, Gabriel didn't set eyes on him again for a year. He had never thought of his younger son as stubborn. That was more Caspar and Damson style. But his absence from Mermaid House during those 12 months proved beyond measure that he was as stubborn as Gabriel himself. He could almost respect his son for that. The sound of an engine jolted Gabriel out of his thoughts "'Shall I go and see who it is?' asked Ned, already slipping down from his seat "'and opening the top half of the camper-van door so that he could peer out. "'It's a car,' he announced, standing on tiptoes. "'There's someone to see you, Mr Liberty.' "'Top marks, young man,' said Gabriel, "'using his hand to wipe a peephole through the steamed-up window "'and recognising with annoyance the mobile Japanese torture chamber "'that had pulled into the courtyard.' didn't that wretched man have the sick and dying to attend to? Shall I invite him in, Mummy? No, Ned, I'm sure Mr Liberty would rather entertain his guest in the comfort of his own home. Gabriel put a last piece of sausage into his mouth and rose stiffly to his feet. He had a nasty feeling that he knew why Dr Singh had called today and if he was ever going to get the irritating quack off his case, he was going to have to engage his brain in some nimble thinking. Dr Singh was already knocking on the back door by the time Gabriel made it across the courtyard in the rain. "'You know what your trouble is,' he said to the doctor. "'You've got too much time on your hands. I suppose you want to come in?' "'Good morning to you, Mr Liberty. "'Yes, entry to your fine house so that we can both get out of this terrible rain "'would be in both our interests, I suspect.' "'And I suspect you of foul play,' Gabriel said.' "'when they were standing in the kitchen "'and Dr Singh had removed his wet coat "'and was requesting a look at his arm. "'You're keeping a close watch on me "'and I don't like it. "'Hmm, that's good. "'It's improving nicely. "'I next. "'Foul play in what way? "'You're biding your time "'before you start insisting "'that I do something about getting help "'around my house. "'You'll pull another of your blackmail stunts on me "'if I don't do as you say. Tut tut, Mr Liberty.' I can't think what you're referring to. Hmm, yes, your eye looks much better, but you do need help, and I'm determined to make sure you see that. It's a big house you have here, and you're not... And I'm not getting any younger, Gabriel finished for him. blah bloody blah You're just dying to get social services onto me, aren't you? You'd like nothing better than to have me rehoused in a tiny box with a warden banging on the door every ten minutes to check I haven't gassed myself through boredom. Why don't you just have done with it and measure me up for a coffin? A tempting suggestion and certainly something to consider. As risky as it is, may I wash my hands? He pulled out a small hand towel from his medical bag, along with a tiny bar of wrapped soap. Oh, please be my guest. Talking of which, would I be correct in thinking you have one? The doctor looked through the window out across the courtyard. A member of your family, perhaps? Or are you about to take to the road and broaden your horizons? My horizons are plenty broad enough, thank you, if you must know. But his words petered out. Family, he repeated. Why did you say that? A shot in the dark. Family, echoed Gabriel privately. Now there was an idea. But would it work? Surely it would be worth a try. Actually, your stab in the dark is spot on. My daughter's come to stay with me. Dr Singh turned off the tap with the tip of his forefinger, picked the small white towel from his shoulder and dried his hands. You've had a change of heart then. Gabriel looked at him blankly. What do you mean? The last time we spoke, you gave the impression that your family meant little to you. Has reconciliation taken place? Ah, something like that, yes. Dr Singh smiled. That is wonderful news. So, will you be allowing your daughter to play a more active role in your life from now on? Oh, do me the honour of getting to the point. What you're really asking is, am I going to let her help me clean up my act? You put it so well, Mr Liberty. And if that were to happen, would you leave me alone? Would you stop turning up here with spurious excuses to check on my welfare, with blackmail on your mind? I might. Well, you stay right there while I go and fetch my daughter for you to meet. You'll soon see that I'm now in thoroughly good hands. Crossing the courtyard, Gabriel had no idea if Miss Costello would play ball with him. But as he had just reasoned with himself, it had to be worth a try. All he had to do was inveigle her into telling a white lie or two, and everyone would be happy, or more precisely, he would be happy. thanks for listening hope you enjoyed this episode of tell me a story next time we learn how gabriel liberty deals with dr singh and find out if clara and ned stay on in deaconsbridge or move on to pastors new will ned's desire to see the mermaid decide the matter keep listening